Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. Before we get started with today's session, I wanted to share a really amazing resource with you. A question that everyone has, a problem that everybody deals with is, how do I focus within my prayer? How do I enjoy my salah? Well, the answer to that question, the solution to that problem is actually quite straightforward and simple. If we understand what we say within our prayer, we'll be able to focus on it, internalize it, and actually get back to enjoying our conversation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We created a solution to make this possible. It's called Meaningful Prayer. This is a course, a curriculum, a seminar, a workshop that I taught in over a hundred locations all across this country and even in other countries. Tens of thousands of people have taken this course and it has really turned around, transformed their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Well now, inshallah, you can take the Meaningful Prayer course online. You can take it according to your own schedule, at your own leisure. You can pace yourself. You can go back and review lessons multiple times to really be able to internalize them. Go to MeaningfulPrayer.com to sign up. Share this resource with others so that we can get back to not only just offering our prayers or performing our salah, but we can go back to experiencing a conversation and relationship with Allah. Now, to get on to today's session, inshallah, we're going to be covering the Shama'il Muhammadiyah, the prophetic personality. The following session was recorded at the Seerah Intensive. Bismillah, walhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, continuing with our study of the Shama'il Muhammadiyah, the prophetic personality. Insha'Allah, we're going to be um, going a little back in terms of the book. I know that uh, in the last two sessions, y'all covered uh, chapters 46 and 47. Uh, the chapter about the bedding of the Prophet ﷺ, Firashi Rasulullah ﷺ, and the humility of the Prophet ﷺ. Babu Maja'afi Tawadu'i Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So, in chapter number 45, which we covered uh, to start um, the Shama'il sessions at Sira Intensive this year, we started off with the first three narrations, the first half of chapter number 45, which is, Babu ma ja'a fi buka'i rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The chapter about the crying of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the nature of the crying of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Inshallah, we're going to continue with the second half of the chapter where we had left off. And there are three narrations in the second half, four, five, and six. Um, and inshallah, today that's what we'll be covering. The very first narration, bidnillahi ta'ala, that we're going to start with Qala al Musannif, Haddathana Mahmud ibn Ghailan, Qala Haddathana Abu Ahmad, Qala Haddathana Sufyan. وهو الثوري عن عطاء بن السائب عن عكرمة عن ابن عباس رضي الله تعالى عنهما قال أخذ رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ابنة له تقضي فاحتضنها فوضعها بين يديه فماتت وهي بين يديه وصاحت أم أيمن فقال يعني صلى الله عليه وسلم أتبكين عند رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فقالت 
ألست أراك تبكي؟ قال إني لست أبكي إنما هي رحمة إن المؤمن بكل خير على كل حال إن نفسه تنزع من بين جنبيه وهو يحمد الله عز وجل A translation, a brief translation, and then we'll get into the details of this particular narration. Abdullah bin Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhumah, he narrates that the Prophet took into his arms his granddaughter. Now, I know that if somebody understands the Arabic, I'm going to have to give a little bit of an explanation before I even complete the translation. Somebody knows some Arabic, they see the word ibnatan, which means daughter, bint, ibna. And similarly, um, if you look at the translation, it also says one of the daughters. But in actuality, the narrations tell us, and we know this for a fact, but Imam al-Nasai has a more extended narration, وَزَادَ النَّسَئِ فِي رِوَايَتِهِ Alright? So this is actually about the granddaughter of the Prophet ﷺ, not his daughter. Because none of the daughters of the Prophet ﷺ passed away in infancy or childhood. Three of his daughters passed away in his lifetime, but they were all adults. They were all married, actually, when they passed away. Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anha, Ruqayya numukulthum. And so this is the granddaughter of the Prophet ﷺ. This was the daughter of the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, Zainab. His daughter, his eldest daughter, Zainab. Her, she had a daughter by the name of Umama. And her father, this baby girl that's being spoken about, her father was Abu al-As ibn al-Rabi'ah, the only husband of Zainab. The daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, her husband and her only husband was by the name of Abu al-As. Abu al-As ibn al-Rabi'ah. Very interesting story. I don't want to get sidetracked into the biographical narrative. But nevertheless, it is a very fascinating story where she of course accepted Islam. When the message came to the Prophet ﷺ, he did not. Now earlier on, there was not that prohibition in place of a Muslim woman being married to a non-Muslim man. That prohibition did not exist at that time in the Meccan period. So the Prophet ﷺ did not annul their marriage, did not you know, conclude or end their marriage, but they were allowed to remain married. Um, after the Prophet ﷺ migrated to the city of Medina, Zainab was not able to come and join him. And the Prophet ﷺ was very pained, very troubled by this. In the Battle of Badr, Abu al-As actually came on behalf of the Quraysh to the Battle of Badr. Now there are authentic reports which talk about the fact that he, he along with the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Abbas, and some others were actually coerced. And they were brought deliberately to try to you know, hurt the feelings of the Prophet ﷺ. That look, your own son-in-law and your uncle are fighting against you. Nevertheless, he came in the Battle of Badr. He was captured. The Prophet ﷺ released him at the request of his daughter Zainab, his wife. That, Father, please release my husband. It's a very touching story where she sends her necklace as ransom. And that necklace was actually passed on to her from her mother Khadija. So it's Khadija's necklace. And when the Prophet ﷺ holds it in his hand, he starts to cry remembering his wife Khadija. 
And the Prophet ﷺ actually requests the companions that if you allow, if you will let me, I not only would like to return my son-in-law, my daughter's husband, back to her, um, but I would also like to return the necklace back to her as well, because it's her mother's necklace. And um, But the Prophet ﷺ negotiated some terms with Abu al-As at that time, and that was, when you go back, you will send my daughter to be with me. She's a believer, she belongs here with us. And Abu al-As agreed to these terms, and of course, very tragically, as Zainab anha was leaving Mecca, she was attacked by a wretched man. And um, she lost the baby that she was carrying, she suffered a wound, and she would ex- eventually uh, succumb to that wound years later. Nevertheless, before she died, she really missed her husband, Abu al-As, who was a good man, the Prophet Even before Abu al-As was Muslim, he complimented Abu al-As. He said he is a good son-in-law, he is a good husband. He had complimented him, even when he wasn't Muslim. So he was very good to Zainab radiallahu anha. And she missed him a lot. She felt like her family was broken up. You know, it was very tough. You see the sacrifices made by those earlier generations. Nevertheless, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered her du'as, fulfilled her longing for her husband, where um, before uh, she passed away, there was a little bit of an incident, a situation where some of his um, goods were seized by some Muslims on one of the campaigns. And so he came to Medina to basically say that I would like my goods returned to me. They were wrongfully seized. And when he came into Medina, Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anha, it's a very fascinating story. And again, it shows, you know, how much she loved him. And it also demonstrates that, you know, the, again, the fatherly aspect of the Prophet you get to see him as a father. Where what happened was that when he gets there to Medina, he reaches out to his, if you will, former wife, Zainab, radiallahu anha, because they've been away for quite a few years. He reaches out to her. You know, they, they, they talk. And so at the Fajr prayer, Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anha comes from Fajr, after the prayer is over, she stands up and she asks a question out loud to the Prophet ﷺ in the masjid. Which once again displays, just in case somebody um, you know, is not sure about it due to cultural dynamics, the permissibility of, of course, not only women folk being in the masjid, which I think we're past that point, but uh, um, the, the women folk being in the masjid, but also the issue and the dynamic of like, are women allowed to speak in public, or can they, you know, uh, you know, speak out and in the congregation, like it, where where the community is gathered? Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anha stands up and she says, "I have a question." Right after the prayer, everyone's there. Now somebody will be like, "Well, that's the daughter of the Prophet Sallallahu Doesn't that if we start doing that, then there's no fiqh, no nothing at all anymore? Then everyone's an exception to every rule, right?" So she stands up and she says, "May I ask a question?" Everyone looks, it's the daughter of the Prophet right? There were jahil people like me that would be like, oh, right? But, you know, um, she says, I have a question. And the, the Prophet says, yes. She says, do any one of us, do all of us individually have the right 
and the, the, the place in this community that we can grant protection to someone and it will be respected by the rest of the community? He said, of course. The word of one of us is the word from all of us. A promise made by one of us is a promise kept by all of us. That's, this is a community, it's a family, it's an ummah. That's how we roll. So she says that Abu al-As is in Medina and I have granted him protection. And it's very interesting. The Prophet says, we need to talk. Right? Let's talk about this. Not in front of everybody. Right? So, but you just see, right, the, 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 the Prophet and being a father, at the same time being in that position, it's just a very interesting dynamic. So the Prophet ﷺ speaks to her and he, you know, uh, lets her know. He says, absolutely, we will respect that. We mean him no harm, no ill, etc., etc. But the Prophet ﷺ lets her know that at the same time, you need to make sure that you maintain some type of, you know, boundaries with him. Y'all are not together now. And now there is the rule in place. A Muslim woman cannot be married to a non-Muslim man. She says, absolutely, I understand that. But he is the father of my children. And the Prophet ﷺ speaks to Abu al-As. He says, yes, what can I help you with? And he says, you know, I would like my goods returned to me that were seized wrongfully. The Prophet ﷺ says, absolutely, allow me to assist you in that regard. And the goods are not only returned back, but Abu al-As receives the goods. And then he leaves the city of Medina, gets outside the city of Medina, and then once he's out there, once he's free and clear with his stuff, then he comes back into the city of Medina. He says, now I'm here on my own terms. I'm not here for anything. Previously, somebody could have said that what I'm about to do, I did just because I wanted my money returned back to me because I was looking for some type of gain. I got what I needed to get. I left here as I left. I re-entered on my own terms because what I would like to say, and he sat down in front of the Prophet is, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashadu annaka rasulullah. And he accepted Islam. And the Prophet rejoined Abu al-As, this new member of the community, and his daughter Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anha, he rejoined them in marriage. They were remarried to one another. And that was, you can see the dua and the longing of Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anha being fulfilled, that she was reconnected and rejoined with her husband, her family was put back together again. Um, so nevertheless, I don't want to get away from the, the narration itself. But so Zainab and Abu al-As, they had a daughter by the name of Umama. And this narration is about that granddaughter of the Prophet ﷺ, Umama. It is not about the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ directly. Okay, why does it say daughter though? Because, okay, the translation could be off, but the Arabic itself says ibnatan lahu. Why does it say daughter? That's a good question, right? Well, you have to understand that in the Arabic language, does the, the, the grandson can be referred to as ibn. Ibn. And the granddaughter can be referred to as just ibna or bint. 
The Prophet ﷺ demonstrated this himself, where he said, Anabnu Abdul Muttalib. I am the son of Abdul Muttalib. He was the grandson of Abdul Muttalib. He's not denying his father's existence. But he's saying, I, we translate. The problem's in our translation. We don't understand. In classical Arabic, Anabnu Abdul Muttalib, when the lineage is well known, it's like saying, I am the grandson of Abdul Muttalib. Everybody understand? Very good. So, this is about the granddaughter of the Prophet ﷺ. So to get back to the narration now, I'll translate. One other thing I'll, I'll mention actually as an explanation before because this is going to reflect in the translation. It makes translating it a little bit more difficult. The translation, the wording even the, in the Arabic itself of the narration seems to allude to the idea that this little girl, this, this baby girl, she dies. One of the... Um, one of the great commentators and one of the most um, well-established commentators on the Shama'il, Imam Al-Bajuri, rahimahullahu ta'ala, who was a scholar of hadith and fiqh, he was a faqih of the Shafi'i Madhab. Um, so very, very knowledgeable scholar and a very thorough researcher. Imam Al-Bajuri, rahimahullahu ta'ala, actually documents the fact where he says, He says that وَإِن كَانَ أَصْلُ الْقَضَاءِ الْمَوْتِ لَلْإِشْرَافِ عَلَيْهِ وَمَعَ ذَلِكَ لَمْ تَمُتْ حِينَ إِذِنْ He says that little girl got very close to dying. They thought that she was going to die, but she did not actually die. بَلْ عَاشَدْ بَعْدَهُ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَمُ She lived on even past the Prophet and she eventually grew up. So much so that Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu later on would marry her. And actually when Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu died, his wife was this Umama bint Zainab. Umama bint Zainab. Alright. كَمَا إِتَّفَقَ عَلَيْهِ أَهْلُ الْعِلْمِ بِالْأَخْبَارِ he said there are overwhelming narrations of history and hadith that establish this particular fact. So again, I wanted to mention that she did not die, but she almost died, right? Because that will reflect in the translation. So now to get back to the narration. The Prophet took his granddaughter into his hands. She, it seemed like she was dying. So he cradled her in his arm. Ihtadana comes from hidden, akhadaha fi hidnihi. It means to kind of cradle here, like near one's chest. He cradled her, cradled her in his arm. Fawada'aha bayna yadehi. And then he put her down in front of him. Like right in front of him, he put her down. Fama'tat. She almost died. Even though even the Arabic seems to say she died, she almost died. Wahiya bayna yadehi. While she was in front of him, she almost died right there, like in front of him, between his hands. Wasahat Ummu Ayman. Ummu Ayman is the we talked about is like a is is like a surrogate mom of the Prophet. It's the woman who raised him. She was like a mother to him. Ya ummi ba'da ummi. She was my mother after my mother passed, the Prophet would say. Sahat. She screamed out. When she saw this little girl like almost stopped breathing, she screamed out. Oh no, no. And she was crying and she screamed out. فَقَالَ يَعْنِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم, The Prophet said to her, أَتَبْكِينَ عِنْدَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم. You behave this way in front of the Messenger of God? 
Because remember, we had talked about it earlier when we were talking about the crying of the Prophet ﷺ, that he had prohibited that type of wailing and being very dramatic. All right, he had, he had reprimanded this practice. So he says to her that you cry out loud like this in front of the messenger of God. Imam Bajuri mentioned something very specific, very beautiful. He says, notice the Prophet ﷺ does not say, Atabkina indi. That you cry like this in front of me? Because it wasn't he wasn't making it about himself. But he was saying in front of the messenger of God. Which is, that is himself. But more so he's not talking about himself as a person. He's talking about the position that he occupies. The, the station, the office that he occupies. And that is the office and the station of the messenger of God. That I have prohibited this practice. You know better. Ya Ummah, you know better. Oh mother, you know better. Don't do this. This wailing and things like that, that's the ways of the jahiliyyah that shows ingratitude to God. We don't act this way. So then she says to him, فَقَالَتْ And you can tell that she's his mom, right? Anybody else, they would have been like, سَمِعْنَا وَاطَعْنَا Absolutely, yes sir. She says what? أَلَسُوا أَرَاكَ تَبْكِي I've seen you cry before. Right? She's his mother. أَلَسُوا أَرَاكَ تَبْكِي haven't I seen you cry? And the Prophet ﷺ says, Inni lestu abki. I don't cry out and wail and you know scream and innamahi rahmatun. When you do see tears stream from my eyes, that is the consequence, that is the result, that is the outcome of mercy. That's just mercy. The, the capacity to be merciful, to feel that pain. And then he says, The Prophet ﷺ says, a believer, is a believer is in a good situation all the time. In every situation. Every situation of a believer is a good situation. And this is also referencing other ahadith, narrations of the Prophet ﷺ. Remarkable is the case of a believer. Everything with a believer is good. That when a believer finds himself or herself in a good situation, they are grateful and they praise and thank Allah, and that's good for them. And when a believer finds himself in a bad situation, they are patient and hope for reward from God. And they're rewarded, and that's good for them. So, he says a believer's situation is always good. He says so much so that a believer, his soul or her soul will depart. The, the, the soul of a believer departs from his or her body while they are praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does he mean by that? Because death is preceded by pain. The pangs of death, sakaratul maut. But even in the pangs of death, even during the sakarat of maut, a believer never stops being grateful to Allah. A, never, a believer never stops praising and glorifying and thanking Allah. Inna nafsahu tunza'u min bayni jambayhi wa huwa yahmadullaha azza wa jal. While the believer thanks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and praises God. The next narration. قال المصنف حدثنا محمد بن بشار قال حدثنا عبد الرحمن بن مهدي قال حدثنا سفيان 
عن عاصم بن عبيد الله عن القاسم بن محمد عن عائشة رضي الله تعالى عنها أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قبل عثمان بن مذعون وهو ميت وهو يبكي أو قال عيناه تهرق تهر تهرقاني. So I forgot to mention this previous narration that we looked at. It is an authentic narration and it is found in the Sahih Imam Muslim, the Sunan of Abu Dawood, the Book of Nasa'i and even the Musnad of Imam Ahmad. Now, narration number five, which I just read the Arabic of, a very brief translation, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. In fact, I want everyone to look at the narrator before Aisha, Al-Qasim ibn Muhammad, wa huwa kana min al-sab'a. He was from the seven great scholars of the city of Medina who were all the students of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. Right? And he particularly was a very close student of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. So anyways, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, she says that the Messenger of God sallallahu alayhi wa kissed the forehead of Uthman ibn Madhu'un after he had died. While his body was there. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa he was crying or in another narration, Al-Qasim ibn Muhammad, he says, while his eyes were shedding tears. This particular narration, to just give some commentary to it, first and foremost, obviously, who is, excuse me, who is Uthman ibn Madhu'un? The question is, who is Uthman ibn Madhu'un? So to answer that particular question, Uthman ibn Madhu'un radiallahu ta'ala anhu was actually related to the Prophet He was his foster brother. They were nursed by the same woman. They were nursed by the same woman. So he was very close to the Prophet He was a foster brother of the Prophet Similarly, he was from Quraysh and also he is mentioned to be the 14th person. The 14th person who accepted Islam. Number 14. So he was the 14th person to become Muslim. So very early Muslim. He had migrated to Abyssinia. He also then performed a migration to Medina, of course. He was a very devoted member of the community of the Prophet Somebody the Prophet relied upon greatly. And he participated in the Battle of Badr. And he passed away two and a half years after arriving in the city of Medina. So about two and a half years after the Hijrah. And it's said that he was the first amongst the Muhajirun to die in the city of Medina. He was the first Muhajir, first Meccan Muslim to die in the city of Medina. And when he passed away, and passed away, the Prophet was so just so heartbroken. He was so distraught over his loss. Because he was his foster brother. He had been with him the entire time. He had been by his side for 15 years. And he was a very key member of the community of the Prophet ﷺ. So the narration mentions that when the Prophet ﷺ went to go see his body, that the Prophet ﷺ kissed him on his forehead. قَبَّلَهُ بَيْنَ عَيْنَيْهِ كَمَا فِي رِوَايَةٍ Kissed him between the eyes right here on the forehead. And this was a, a gesture of nobility. A gesture of love and respect and admiration. And in fact, it's, it's such a huge compliment coming from the Prophet Because kissing someone on the forehead was a gesture of respect. You would do that to your elder. You would do that to your teacher. 
the Sahaba would want to kiss the Prophet ﷺ on his forehead. It was a gesture of respect, love, and admiration. For the Prophet ﷺ to kiss Uthman bin Mad'un on his forehead was such a huge compliment. And it's mentioned about Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. When the Prophet ﷺ passed away, that's what Abu Bakr as-Siddiq did was he kissed the forehead of the Prophet ﷺ. So the Prophet kissed him on his forehead and the narration that's found in Al-Mishkat, it actually says, There were so many tears flowing from the eyes of the Prophet that not only were tears coming down, but the tears were falling on the face of Uthman while he kissed him on his forehead. Like think about how much he missed him, how much he loved him. And there's a question that occurs over here that does this in any way contradict with the narration that is found from Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha where she says, مَا بَكَا عَلَى مَيِّتٍ قَطُّ مَا بَكَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ عَلَى مَيِّتٍ قَطُّ That the Prophet حُزْنًا وَإِنَّمَا غَايَتُ أَنْ يَمْسِكَ لِحْيَتَهُ she says that the Prophet ﷺ never cried, wailed over the dead out of, you know, grief. But rather the greatest extent that he went to was that he would hold his beard. This was like a way the Prophet ﷺ, you know, kind of dealt with grief and sorrow. Um, now, does this contradict? Because we see the Prophet ﷺ obviously crying. His tears are falling on the face of the deceased. So how do we reconcile the two? Well, the reconciliation between the two is that she mentions in a narration, she says, مَا بَكَا Like he never wailed and like dramatically, you know, cried out loud over the deceased. But as he said in the previous narration, he did shed tears. But he said that that's mercy. That's just a heart feeling pain. In al-ayna la tadma. In al-qalba la yahzun. Tadma'u al-aynu. Wa yahzun al-qalbu. The eye sheds tears and the heart feels pain. The heart aches. So that's just life. So this doesn't contradict anyway. The last thing I wanted to mention in this narration is Wa aynahu tuhraqani. Now, if we literally translate that, it's a very interesting uh, rhetorical function and expression in the Arabic language. If we literally translate that, the word uh, basically means for something to flow. His eyes were flowing. But that, the way that literally almost makes it seem like, like his eyes like floated away type of thing. It doesn't make any sense. But this is a rhetorical function of the Arabic language because more properly said, the way that it would be expressed in the Arabic language is yuhriquhuma an-nabiyu sallallahu alayhi wa That the Prophet sallallahu was flowing tears from his eyes. Or dumu'uhu tahruqu min aynayhi. That his tears were streaming from his eyes. Yasubbu dumu'uhu dumu'uhuma that his tears were flowing forth. That would be the proper way to say it. 
But that's not how it's said in the Arabic language. When somebody is shedding, somebody, so many tears are coming from someone's eyes. Someone is crying so profusely that you say it's like his eyes themselves flowed out. It's an expression. All right? Exactly. Like we say in English, like crying my eyes out. Right? So that's what it that's what the Prophet ﷺ, that's how it described which gives you an appreciation of how much pain the Prophet has been feeling. And to further understand this, that we have to understand that the 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 relationship of the Prophet ﷺ with his companions, with his community members, was not just a business relationship, was not just a relationship of convenience, was not just you know a relationship of means that they were a means to an end is not cliche and it is not just lip service when the Prophet speaks about his companions like they are family. When he calls you Ummah one family. When he says Salman minna al bayt Salman is a part of my family. When he tells Abdullah bin Mas'ud who doesn't have a family like extended family he doesn't belong his tribe is not there. His tribe doesn't claim him. That when he says that the way you can seek permission to enter into my home is lift up the curtain and walk in, open the door and walk on in because you're family. That's not lip service. The Prophet ﷺ meant that. He treated people like family. Right? And so that shows you that the, the passing of a community member, a companion, a sahabi, causes so much pain where he's just crying and crying and crying. The, the last narration that we'll be covering today, قال المصنف حدثنا إسحاق بن منصور قال أخبرنا أبو عامر قال حدثنا فليح وهو ابن سليمان عن عن هلال بن علي عن أنس بن مالك قال شهدنا ابن تند رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ورسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم جالس على القبر فرأيت عينيه تدمعان فقال أفيكم رجل لم يقارف الليلة قال أبو طلحة أنا قال انزل فنزل في قبرها I'll translate this it involves a mention of a sensitive issue but then I'll explain Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu he says that we were present at the funeral and the burial of one of the daughters of the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ was sitting on the edge of the grave. And I saw that his eyes were just constantly flowing with tears. And he said, is there anyone amongst you who has not been intimate with his spouse the previous night? Abu Talha says, I, O Messenger of God, at which time the Prophet ﷺ said, descend into the grave. And then he descended down into her grave. To basically lower the body into the grave. What that means is to lower the body into the grave. Because when, when you bring, when you bury someone, when you lower the body into the grave, usually what it takes is that somebody has to kind of get down into the grave, that they can kind of receive the body and lay it down into the grave. So someone has to get down in there. And it's physically difficult. So the Prophet said, go, you do it. And then he got down in the grave to receive the body. 
Now, first and foremost, to go through the explanation, let's deal with the more technical detail. And that is, it's mentioning that we attended the funeral of the daughter of the Messenger of God, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Whose funeral is this? So, the daughters of the Prophet, sallallahu wasallam, we of course spoke about Zainab, radiallahu ta'ala anha, who would depart from this world, who would pass away in the ninth year of Hijrah. Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anha, his youngest daughter, lived on beyond him by six months. His middle two daughters, so his eldest was Zainab, then was Ruqayyah. Ruqayyah radiallahu ta'ala anha, who was married to Uthman bin Affan, she passed away the day of the Battle of Badr. So the Prophet was not there in Medina when she passed away. He found out about her death when he arrived back in Medina after the victory of Badr. It was very bittersweet. And so he was not there for her janazah. This is the third daughter of the Prophet whose name was Ummu Kulthum. Ummu Kulthum. Who after Ruqayyah passed away, the Prophet then married his next daughter, Ummu Kulthum, once again to the widower of his elder daughter, Ruqayyah Uthman. He married Ummu Kulthum to Uthman. And actually after this passing of Ummu Kulthum, which I'll come back to in a second, the Prophet said that if I had yet another daughter to marry, I'd marry her once again to Uthman. Because he's just a, such a remarkable person. And that's why Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu is known as Dhul-Nurayn, the possessor of two lights, the one who is granted two gifts, meaning he married not one but two daughters of the Prophet So when Umm Kulthum passed away, the Prophet was very saddened, he was very sad. Umm Kulthum had been sick actually for quite some time, she had been ill. The Prophet ﷺ was there. He's a bit older now. This was towards the end of the life of the Prophet. ﷺ. So he's quite a bit older. And not only that, but the Prophet, ﷺ, he was so distraught at the passing of Umm Kulthum that the Prophet as it mentions, he just sat down on the edge of the grave and he was crying and crying. It was very difficult for him. And the Prophet normally, he would have gotten down into the grave himself to lower the body in as the father. But he just physically was finding it so taxing and so difficult for him. So the Prophet ﷺ, he needed some assistance. He needed some help. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he asked, and the narration mentions that there were four people, because it takes a few people, there were four people who lowered the body into the grave. There was Ali bin Abi Talib, Fadl ibn Abbas, Usama ibn Zayd, and the fourth one, they needed a fourth person to assist and to help. 
So the Prophet ﷺ normally would have been the fourth himself as a family member. These were all family, so as a family member. But the Prophet ﷺ just physically could not gather the strength to do it, bear yet another child. So the Prophet ﷺ said that I'm going to need assistance and there not being any other relatives present, the Prophet ﷺ needed help and assistance from someone, a brother in the community, but who would not be a direct relative of the deceased, Umm Kulthum. And therefore, the Prophet ﷺ asked the question that he asked. That who has not basically engage in intimacy with their spouse. And that was just to basically kind of give just, you know, a sense of dignity um, for Umm Kulthum and for the situation and the sensitivity of the situation. And when Abu Talha basically volunteered himself, the Prophet said, okay, please, you join the other three in lowering your body into the grave assisting them, and he did so. Alright? Um, and this, of course, you know, everything that happens um, during the lifetime of the Prophet wasallam is basically, uh, has guidance and a lesson in it. This was to demonstrate the fact that, ideally speaking, yes, that, you know, the, the individuals, the men, who will have to handle the body of a deceased woman uh, will be relatives of hers. However, sometimes there might not be that luxury. And when that luxury is not there, then it is allowable and it is permissible for other folks, for other brothers in the community to have to basically lower the body into the grave. And this was demonstrated through the daughter of the Prophet Excuse me? Well, in, well, I'm not getting specific about that right now. But so this demonstrates that particular permissibility that there might be a need. There might be a license, right? And that, so that license is provided due to the need potentially being there. Inzil fanazala fi qabriha. He entered her grave. But once again, Imam Tirmidhi, rahimullahu ta'ala, brings this particular narration to again demonstrate the fact that the Prophet ﷺ was sitting at the edge of the grave of his daughter, the grave that she was about to occupy, and he was crying tears, and it was such an overwhelming moment for him that he physically was not even able to get up. The previous narration I once again forgot to mention, it is an authentic narration. Some have actually critiqued, have actually questioned the authenticity of the narration. However, Imam At-Tirmidhi, Imam Ahmad, Imam Abu Dawood, Imam Majah, they all mention the narration, so it is generally graded as being acceptable. Um, and then this last narration that we just covered, um, this particular narration is also graded as being authentic, and it is found actually in the Sahih of Imam Bukhari, along with the Musnad of Imam Ahmad and many other books of Hadith. So it's an authentic narration. And insha'Allah, with that, uh, we will conclude the study of the Shama'il for today. And insha'Allah, in the next session, we'll continue with chapter number uh, 48.
which will be covering the mannerisms of the Prophet Jazakumullah khairan. Subhanallah bihamdihi, subhanakallah bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nasafirku wa natubu ilayk.